Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Well, hello there. Time again for the Florida Roundtable. I'm your host, Melissa Fox, and we've got a full show packed with information for you. Coming up, we're going to talk about what a PEO is and how your company or business could benefit from partnering with one. We'll talk about colorectal screenings, childhood cancer as well. We're also going to talk to a company known as Charge Enterprises. They are set up to power up EV charging stations across the country. And you know me, I handed him a curveball. The new book out, Cats Meow, How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa. We're going to be talking with the author. Lots of questions that needed answers. This is all coming up on this week's episode of the Florida Roundtable. Call your friends. It's time to settle in and listen. It's the Florida Roundtable. Next up, we're going to talk about childhood cancer. Yeah, it's heavy stuff, I'll tell you. But we got a lot going on. We got a lot of people to help us out with this topic, including Rainy Clark. She's a 10-year-old cancer survivor. And then we've got Kevin Riley from Hyundai Hope on Wheels. That's Hyundai. Hope on Wheels board member. Hi, you two. Welcome to the Roundtable. You guys are awesome. 25 years since Hope on Wheels was created. Please, Kevin, tell us what that means to the organization. Melissa, it means a lot to us. Hyundai Hope on Wheels began with very humble beginnings back in 1998. Every time Hyundai dealers sold a vehicle, Hyundai Motor America and Hyundai dealers, we put our money together, and that money would go to fund pediatric cancer research through our charity, Hyundai Hope on Wheels. And It's amazing to think about 25 years later, this year we'll donate $25 million in pediatric cancer research grants, bringing our lifetime total to $225 million. Oh, wow, that is great. Rainy, let's turn over to you for a second here. I want to hear about your personal battle against cancer and why it's so important for all of us to help. When I was six years old, I got diagnosed with ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. My mother took me to the doctor because my energy was low. She thought I had strep throat. Soon after my vitals crashed, I was airlifted to a, a pediatric child hospital. That's where I found out I had ALL. It's important for other people to help because I don't want any any other kid like me to go through what I did. It was already too rough on me, so if I see another person, it will just make me feel sad and think of what I had. Oh, goodness. Hey, how was the helicopter ride? Were you uh, able to pay attention to everything you were going on there? Yeah, my my dad went with me, and he, we would just look at the mountains, and he would distract me from knowing what was what happened. What a great dad. Now, uh, you are in Nevada, Bunkersville, which is a pretty small little town. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to get treatment. And now, you were in treatment for two and a half years? Yes. Oh, my goodness. You finished your treatment a couple of years ago now, and you are cancer-free. Congratulations, Rainy. 
Thank you. Let's go back to Kevin here. Kevin, of course, works with the Hyundai Hope on Wheels. And what changes have you seen, honestly, Kevin, in the fight against pediatric cancer? Well, Melissa, it's interesting. If you think back to 1998, technology's changed a lot for us all, you know, both in the consumer products we use, let's say a, a phone or the car we drive, but it's also changed in the area of pediatric cancer research. So with the advancements in technology, researchers are able to move towards cures faster. And then also, too, on the treatment side of things, the research has helped develop less invasive ways to treat the cancer to make sure that life after cancer for these children is that much better. What a great answer for that. So why is the focus on research so important in the fight against childhood cancer? Well, Melissa, that's a great question. And what a lot of people don't know is if you take a look at the landscape of federal funding for cancer research, only 4% goes to pediatric cancer research. Mm. So that's where an organization like Hyundai Hope on Wheels can come in and make a real difference for researchers developing cutting-edge cures for pediatric cancers. I love that. Rainy, are you having a good time doing this publicity tour? Yes, because I, I like to share the hope. Yeah, that's my girl. There we go. Uh, Kevin, quickly, if you wouldn't mind, um, these grants, how have they made a difference for Hope on Wheels? Well, they make the difference in the lives of children all across the nation. And the great thing about these grants is they're spread across hospitals and institutions nationwide. So from Florida to California to everywhere in between, there are a lot of institutions that benefit from these grants. And we're very glad to see that the, the research that was funded and the children's lives that were saved. Where can we go for more information? Well, Melissa, uh, you can go to HyundaiHopeOnWheels.org, and you can see some of the cutting-edge research that's being undertaken in the area of pediatric cancer research. But more importantly, you can go and read about the stories of courage and bravery of young cancer survivors like Rainey right here. Oh, I want to thank both of you for helping us out today. Rainey, congratulations on beating cancer a couple of years ago. Thank you. And Kevin, thank you so much. Kevin Riley, Hyundai Hope on Wheels board member. Thank you for doing what you do. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. The whole world is getting ready to power up EV charging stations all over the country. Now, you know I drive a hybrid, so I don't have to uh, charge up so much. Kind of one of those combination deals. But Andrew Fox is with us today. Now, he's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Charge Enterprises. Yeah, it's a NASDAQ-listed company. Charge Enterprises in the house. Hello, Mr. Fox. How are you? Good morning, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm doing wonderful. Fantastic. So what inspired you to start Charge Enterprises? I was an early investor in a company called Lime Scooters, the green and white scooter company. Yeah. And after I invested in Lime, I saw that the Achilles heel of this entire EV movement was a lack of supporting infrastructure. And so, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I saw this opportunity and it was an itch I couldn't stop scratching. <laughs> I love it. So you stopped scratching it. You started scratching it. And then, uh, well, well, let's, let's go on. There's been a lot going on here in the country lately about changing our military over to EVs and green, and which I, I have a problem uh, imagining if that would actually work. But how do you see electric vehicles and clean energy infrastructure revolutionizing transportation? And will uh, there be a role for charge enterprises? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities to the evolution of the EV industry to the evolution of the wireless broadband industry. 35 years ago, people really didn't contemplate kind of the sheer need for, you know, wireless communication like we do now. And the infrastructure had to be built to build the momentum and the adoption. And so a, a similar thing is transpiring here in the EV industry as people are kind of like scratching their head. Do I really need this yet? The reality is the largest automotive makers have, contri- have kind of announced that they're investing $1 trillion in the conversion from ICE vehicles to EV. And they don't have the resources to invest in both ICE and EV. So what I think you're going to see transpire here is, is slowly but surely, EVs are going to kind of take over. And, and you see it in Europe. You see it in China. America is also a, a car culture. And so I think you'll see it here as well. Today, we're about 5% of all the vehicles on the road are EV or hybrid plug-in. <clears throat> That's expected to 10x, okay, by the end of the decade. Wow. So today, we have 5 million cars on the road by the end of the decade that are EVs. We're expected to have you know, 40 to 50 million. And then by 2035, it's supposed to double again. Wow. And so there's a gravitational force here that's pulling and i think the adoption of evs only happens if companies like charge build the infrastructure and so we're kind of you know we see ourselves as the enablers of this movement wow well we're talking with um with andrew fox and i have a sidebar question for you actually a statement from what i understand all new evs as well as like the entire ford line anything new they put out they're not going to put AM radios into these cars. And we have a problem with that because that's the first place you go for, you know, your news, your your evacuations, hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, even sports as well. So um, how does that stand? Can you talk to the EV manufacturers and say we need AM radio and along with our charging stations? Uh, that's actually a great question, Melissa. Um, it's the first time I've been asked that question. And... Uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm quite surprised at that. Um, so I'm a little outside my swim lane being able to answer why. But uh, if you give me a chance, I'll talk to some of the stakeholders within our organization that came from Big Auto and, and revert back on the answer to that. That would be great because right now we're trying to save AM radio by having people text AM to 52886. So uh, that's the only thing we can do here now for that. But the EVs, you know, it's like people go, oh, they're bad. They, they catch fire when it floods. All of these things have been kind of addressed. And So what do you think is the biggest challenge when it comes to getting people to adopt electric vehicles? I mean, I think for starters, it's anxiety around, you know, running out of juice, which is kind of central to our mission. And we're a mission-based company. You know, our mission is to accelerate the adoption of EVs. And so I think one of the biggest hindrances there is just the anxiety around, hey, if I run out of juice, what happens? And, and I think domestically, we're, we're, we're certainly a little further behind than, you know, our counterparts in Europe or, right. or in other markets. But I think that, you know, that will be solved. And, and just like, you know, the, the gas station experience today is a five-minute refill, as soon as the technology, and it's, it's getting closer, uh, that you can kind of get, you know, a, a top off or fill up in, in five to ten minutes, then you're going to see a very strong acceleration of the adoption of the EVs. And 
that technology is out there. It's uh, prohibitively expensive, so we only see it, you know, in high-profile locations. But I think what you'll see more and more of is kind of like Moore's Law. And every couple of cycles, the EV charging will get faster and more robust. And by the end of the decade, I think, like I said before, if McKenzie and all the smart companies have their predictions come true, acceleration of EVs is going to be pretty significant. And the infrastructure will kind of, you know, work out most of the kinks that uh, around the anxiety that people have. Because I think that's really the only hindrance today. I'm on a long road trip today myself. And, you know, we have to check uh, where the charging stations are before we leave. And, and that is a little bit of a frustration point. But if you want to see the acceleration of EVs, you know, today you have to kind of deal with that. Similar to the way that 35 years ago, you might have dealt with, you know, when, uh, when you had roaming on your cell phone, but you right. really couldn't get connected. Yeah, I that's think fun. It's very similar. <laughs> it's, I think it's very similar. Yeah, it sounds it. What's next for you guys huh, at the uh, Charge Enterprises? Well, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're reporting our uh, first quarter earnings. You know, last year we generated $698 million of revenue in our third year of operation, up from 470 the year before and up from 84 the year before. So we're, you know, we're in, you know, accelerated growth mode. <clears throat> we think that one of the biggest parts of the infrastructure part is kind of understanding the monitoring and maintenance of these systems. You don't want someone to pull into a charging station that doesn't work. Yeah, that would and, be bad. And that, oh, imagine you're, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a terrible situation. And so, you know, we're focusing on not only the design, engineering, install, but also the maintenance and monitoring of these systems. And, you know, we've launched a number of initiatives around making sure that the uptime of the systems that are being installed are, you know, you know, operating at the highest percentage of, of, you know, utilization as possible. And so for us, we've got, you know, a lot of work over the next decade to really fill in the infrastructure. And so, you know, I'm happy to report that, you know, we're still seeing very, very strong tailwinds in the industry that we're participating in. And even, you know, the, the right loves EV charging because it creates jobs. The left loves EV charging and, and kind of the evolution of EV because it saves the planet. So you've got decent bipartisan support right now, domestically speaking, for the adoption of EV. And so for us, we're okay with it being kind of Groundhog's Day every day and continuing to just block and tackle the way that we are. Perfect. I want to thank you so much for visiting us today, Andrew, and for lightening us on well, charging stations, EVs, and of course, Save AM Radio. It's been a lot of fun talking to you, and good luck Thank with you. it. Thank and, yeah. and I owe you an answer back on the AM radio. All right. So I will make sure that we uh, we either send a carrier pigeon or an email. <laughs> we get you the information back, Perfect. and uh, and and you have my word that you'll. Uh, you get a response on that before the end of the week. Perfect. Now I'm kind of intrigued. Well, thank you so much for being on the Florida Roundtable today. And I know people were definitely interested in hearing what you had to say. Andrew Fox, everybody. It's the Florida Roundtable. 65% of Americans, 21 and older, are not up to date on routine cancer screening. And remember, early detection equals better outcomes. With that in mind, let's talk with Jody Hoyos. She's the CEO of Prevention Cancer Foundation. Welcome to the Roundtable table, Jody. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Our early detection survey was really illuminating for us and helping us to understand why people aren't getting their cancer screening. So you mentioned that, you know, 65% of adults um, are not up to date with at least one cancer screening. How do we get this turned around? This is not a good trend. People need to be getting checked for cancer. Uh, what, what are, what's in place? Hmm? Each individual is different. So the recommended screenings differ based on your age and your gender and even your family history. To make it a little bit easier for everyone, we have created work, uh, resources for people um, where they can create a personalized screening plan and they can print that out and take it to their doctor's office. They can look and see exactly what they need at every age. They can look and find resources that they can use to talk to their families. If people have access to that information, it is really helpful to inform what screenings you need and when. We are talking with Jody Hoyos. She is the CEO of Prevent Cancer Foundation. Is that the poop in the box thing? Yeah, it can be. That's <laughs> poop in a box is one of the options, and it's an important option. Because <laughs> yeah, I always have so much fun talking to people about important things. Here we are laughing about poop in a box, but it's actually very important, right? So colorectal cancer is one of the few cancers that is preventable through screening, and that's because doctors can go in and remove polyps during a colonoscopy before they have a chance to go on and become cancerous. That doesn't happen with the poop in the box. However, still can detect cancer in its earliest stages when treatment is most likely to be effective. We want to make sure that everyone who's 45, so if you're 45, turn 45, it's time for your colorectal cancer screening, um, and if you're older as well. So don't miss out if, if, if you, know, you haven't done that yet. You can do that through colonoscopy or through other options like at-home tests. So what can be done to encourage people to get their cancer screenings? I mean, there's so many, breast cancer, cervical, colorectal cancer, oral cancer, lung, prostate, skin cancer, testicular cancer. Uh, again, it's up to each individual person what their needs are. But how do we address that with family and friends? We just yell at them, you need to get cancer screening. No. I don't, I don't so, you know. I think we've all tried the shame approach in our okay. own lives, but I don't know. I think it's, it's really about information and giving people um, easy-to-use information, particularly what we found is that when people knew the benefits of early detection, they were more likely to act. So helping people to know that, listen, this is gonna, if it's going to come, it's going to come one way or the other. And um, just like you said at the beginning, you feel fine until you don't. So let's address it when you feel fine. And... Um, you have more options for treatment if, if something happens to be found. Or, best case, you're able to prevent it altogether. And prevention can happen through colorectal cancer screenings and cervical cancer screenings. This is fantastic. Where can we go and get more information, Jody? You can go to preventcancer.org, where we have all sorts of resources so that we can create a world where cancer is beatable for everyone. Jody Hoyo, CEO of Prevent Cancer Foundation. Preventcancer.org. That's it? You got it. All you right. got it. Thank you so much for joining us and for All enlightening right. us, Jody. We appreciate you. Thank you, Melissa. You're listening to the Florida Roundtable with Melissa Fox on the Florida Talk and Entertainment Network. You're listening to the Florida Roundtable with Melissa Fox on the Florida Talk and Entertainment Network. It's the Florida Roundtable and your cat, the domestic cat that is, 
Did you know it's evolved from Africa, the origins there, transferred in comparatively little time to one of the most, well, successful and diverse species on the planet? Jonathan Lossus is with us tonight, and he's writing a book, both as a scientist and a cat lover. Now, you know I love my dogs, but I do love my cats, too. Let's just put it that way. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Well, hi, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me on it. Yeah, the new book is the uh, Your Cat, uh, From the Savannah to Your Couch. Is that correct? Uh, the Cat's Meow, Aha! From the Savannah to Your Sofa. There it is. Uh, no sofa. I have a couch. Sorry. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's, let's get into the meat of this thing. These cats were clearly domesticated, but... Where did they start out, and how? I mean, obviously, Savannah, Africa. How did we end up domesticating them so much? Well, it goes like this. This occurred in the area that we call now the Middle East. Uh, Sometimes it's called the Fertile Crescent. It's where basically civilization first began, where people stopped being hunter-gatherers, and they settled down, and they built villages and started farming. And as you know, when farmers grow food, they grow as much as they can during the good season, and then they store the excess for leaner times. And so you can imagine they had little huts or whatever full of grains or whatever crops they were growing, and that attracted a lot of mice and rats because they saw that as a a bounty of food. Mm -hmm. And so the rodent population exploded, and then in turn the native species of cat that lived there, the African wildcat, was attracted to all of these rodents. Uh, you know, it was just a, a buffet for them with, full of food. And so some of the cats, the ones that were bolder and more curious, would enter the village and start catching the rodents. Well, people saw the advantage to that, and so they started treating the cats nicely. Maybe they put out a little a bit of food, a bowl of milk, which really isn't so good for them, but mm. something like that, or let them come into the house, have a warm, dry shelter. And again... The cats that were just predisposed to be more willing to do that got more to eat, and they were safer, and they had shelter, and so they did better, and they had more kittens. And then, you know, when the cats are living in the house, well, they're adorable. Maybe people started petting them, and the cats that were willing to let themselves be touched would be treated even better. And so there was this dance back and forth with the cat evolving, adapting to live among us and to be sociable to us, and people uh, liking that and being treating them even better. And that's, that's the kind of the idea how domestication happened. Yeah, Jonathan Lawless is with us right now. The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa is a great book. You're actually an evolutionary biologist. How did that come about? Well, I was, uh, so I, I will tell you, I've been a cat lover ever since I was a little boy. And when we bought a cat, at, we got a cat at the shelter for my father, who loved cats himself. But I was also one of those little boys who was fascinated by dinosaurs. You know, I had a basket full of plastic dinosaurs, and I could pronounce <laughs> all their names and so on. And as I grew up, I transferred that uh, love from dinosaurs to living reptiles, lizards and crocodiles and so on. And I became a scientist, a zoologist focused on reptiles. But at the same time, I've always loved and been interested in cats. And in recent years, I, I discovered, I didn't realize this, that there's a lot of very interesting research being conducted on the domestic cat, on how they evolved, why they do what they do, and so on. And people study cats the same way I study lizards, by looking at their DNA and putting radio trackers on them and so on. 
And so uh, I had the idea of I would teach a, a college class to students called the science of cats. And the idea was that I would sucker in the students on cats, and then I would teach them how we study nature just using cats as the vehicle. Oh. And the course was lots of fun, and I think it was a big success. And so I had then the idea, well, let's turn it into a book and, and let people know all the wonderful things that we have learned about cats and how we have learned it, how we know what we know about where cats came from and why they do what they do and so on. Well, I appreciate you unraveling the secrets of the cats, you know, past and present, using all the modern technology that you got to get. Do you know that these guys actually... The cats, you'd be amazed. They know where they live. They know when to come back. They're so casual. I love cats for one reason. You go on vacation, you leave a bowl out with some food and water, you come back, and all you see is the butt as they walk away. Oh, it's you. Well, there goes yep. my weekend. Call a party off. You know, <laughs> cats are fun. But I do have some questions, first and foremost, about their uh the older brothers, if you will, and sisters in the species, lions and tigers and bears. No, lions and tigers. Um, they have their own way of communicating. It's not the meow, the varying meow that our domesticated cats have. Um, do they do they actually meow at all? These lions and tigers, or just a <laughs> roar? They, they they roar and they communicate in other ways, but they do not meow. Uh, they also don't purr because they have a different structure in their throat that allows them to roar. So they communicate in different ways. However, uh, it turns out people aren't aware that there are lots of species of small cats around the world, especially in Asia, Africa, and South America. Things you may have heard of an ocelot or the bobcat. There's many more. And they do meow. All the small cats meow, and they all purr. Hmm. So a pet ocelot, that's a great idea, right? I should go out and get Uh, one? Uh, maybe not. Okay. Uh, number one, they're not. You know, domestic cats have evolved to become affectionate and to to live well with us. Not true of ocelots. They don't make good pets. And even more so, uh, even a bigger problem is ocelots are are becoming rare in the wild. Okay. We should not be removing them to bring them for pets. So that's, that's a bad idea. Okay. But. Let me tell you one thing. There are some new breeds of cats that have been selected to look like ocelots. They're just beautiful cats with spots, and they're gorgeous. If you want a wildcat-looking cat, get one of them. Yeah. Don't get an ocelot. <laughs> um, I used to have cats, as I told you in the uh, preamble, but uh, my, my huskies felt that they were like little snacks and such, so we had to kind of get rid of the cats. But before I pulled the dogs into the situation, I would get moles. They would bring in moles, not mouse, but a dead mole many times and put it either in my shoe or right in the middle of my bed next to my pillows. Why do they do that? Well, you know, this is a question I am getting the most frequently. And so it turns out that this is actually very hard to study scientifically. The truth is we don't really know why they do that. There are lots of interesting ideas that you can find on the Internet or elsewhere, and, and they might be true. Uh, my favorite explanation is that when your cat brings you a, a dead thing it's caught, or maybe even a live one sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, the cat does that because she's, uh, she, or let's just say it's a female cat, she thinks that you are an inept hunter and that she needs <laughs> to teach you how to hunt, just as she does to her kittens. So she's bringing you uh, dead prey for you to learn how to hunt. Um, I would like to think that's true. Mm-hmm. I, 
but we, it's really hard to figure things like that out. Well, I always thought it's a gift. Now, when I go to feed my dogs, they bring me one of their toys. It's sort of an exchange thing that uh-huh. we do, barter. It's, they always do. They always bring me a toy, and it's like some sort of gratitude exchange, I think. Um, yeah. I've, I've never had that with cats so much, but I could see maybe they're doing that as a, hey, thanks for letting me live here thing. You know, it's possible. I, I, it, it's certainly possible that that's the case. But not so much. Okay, I got you. Well, you know, we don't. This is really hard to, to figure out scientifically. <laughs> no. I would love to get the answer, but um, figuring something like that out, it's hard. What, what experiment would you do to figure it out? It's a, it's a difficult one. I agree. I agree. Uh, hang on a second. Okay, so um, we got to wrap this up a little bit, but what's up with the cats and all the Egyptian hieroglyphics and such? Well, it's, it's very interesting. By 3,500 years ago, cats were clearly domesticated. We see images of them on tomb walls and on, on stone inscriptions of cats wearing collars, of them eating food underneath in a dish underneath the dining room table, of going on family outings on, in a marsh on a canoe. Um, so they definitely were domesticated by then. And, and as, you, as you may know, the ancient Egyptians had a large number of different gods, and about 3,000 years ago, the number one god was named Bastet, and she was always pictured as a woman with the head of a cat. Ooh. And so cats became revered as you know, symbols of Bastet. And so it was a great time to be a cat, uh, with one exception. And that exception was that when people went to temples to worship the god or maybe to ask for a request, they would take a votive offering, as some people do today when they go to church. Mm-hmm. But this votive offering would be a, a cat mummy, that the temples would actually breed cats, and this is horrible, kill them and mummify them to sell the people to bring uh, to these to temples as a, an offering to the god. And people did it by the hundreds of thousands. Wow. So it was both the best of times and the worst of times to be a cat. The book is Cats Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. The author, Jonathan Lossus. Thank you so much for letting us know how cats became cats, house cats that is, and for joining us today on the Florida Roundtable. We really appreciate you. Well, it's my pleasure, Melissa. Thank you. That's going to work. I got my other guests on the line already. Thank you, Jonathan. Good stuff. Well, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. When I'm driving my truck, I'll remember to check my mirrors for smaller vehicles. And when you're on the road, try to avoid lingering in my blind spots. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. It's the Florida Roundtable, and do you have any idea what the advantages of hiring a PEO and the impact on your HR would be? No, I don't either. So let's talk to the guy who does know. Brett Steele is with us today. Brett, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am okay. Uh, you work with Insperity. What's the full name of that company, actually? In, it's Insperity. Just Insperity? Wow, I'm inspired. I really am. Okay, so <laughs> I mentioned in the opening a PEO. What the heck is a PEO? Sure. Um, the PEO, it stands for, to get technical, a professional employer organization. Mm. Uh, and PEOs, they largely function as a, a human resources department for small and mid-sized companies um, that do provide services to those organizations like payroll, 
uh, employer-related tax filings. Uh, they bring employee benefits management, uh, claims resolution, uh, HR support uh, to those types of organizations. Wow. So companies obviously can benefit from partnering up with a PEO, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned some of the services and solutions. What does Insperity provide for the HR? Hmm? So Insperity overall will do HR consulting, uh, recruiting, uh, bring insurance, retirement 401k plans, uh, payroll, and a human capital management suite of services um, to small mid-sized companies. Wow. So what happens when businesses, like in the pandemic and such, which isn't quite over yet, um, how, how did they get so crazy and how did a PEO help the businesses navigate these trying times, if you will? Yeah, Um so especially in the past with the pandemic and um, even today where businesses are being um, kind of pushed to deal with more remote or hybrid work options, um, those HR leaders need to be aware of, of many employees that are scattered across uh, is one challenge. Um, the, to be able to keep that top talent they, the employees will expect greater flexibility uh, than in years past. Um, you know, a PEO and, and HR consulting can come in and, and help manage those, uh, will help HR leaders manage those re- remote employees more effectively. Um, they, the HR leaders are going to need to be aware of new, new strategies like virtual team building um, and how do you do that when everybody's virtual. Um, maybe putting in project management software um, having a, better, better, a bigger emphasis on communication, um, you know, especially the pandemic has led employees to spend less time together um, and at the office, which also creates a greater need for investment into that corporate culture uh, so they can be the employer of choice to be able to go attract the, the right level of talent to help support their business and, and also keep the, the high level of talent that's already uh, inside the inside the the company. So, um, you know, here for, at iHeart Florida News Network, um, we kind of got rid of the local HR department, and now it's like a company-wide thing. I don't even know where they're dealt out of, but it's very, very difficult for the employee <laughs> to map that, you know, that, that communication to HR. So what would Insperity do to help that out? Yeah, well, PEOs, they all look can look similar from the services that they um, that they bring to the table to support companies, but all PEOs aren't built the same. They're built very differently. Um, and I think that as companies that are already using one or would like to learn more about it going through a process, I think it's just a philosophical fit of, of the right partner for those businesses. Um, Insperity is very uh, relationship-driven. Uh, we want to be able to be a proactive partner with our companies. Um, so things like local service presence, things like uh, relationships and dealing directly with the dedicated folks um, is a high priority of ours um, because we want to be that, like I said, that proactive support. Not every PEO is built that way. And, you know, again, it just gets down to the philosophical fit of uh, what a company is looking for out of a PEO partner um, that kind of drives them in the direction of which PEO to partner. But Insperity is high, high touch, high quality, 
uh, very relationship driven. Talking with Brett Steele from Insperity about a PEO. Now, let's look at worst case scenario, okay? Employees don't have a trusted third party advisor for guidance and insight. What happens? Um, a couple things. One, they, they're, they're holding the responsibility and they are holding the, the decision solely by themselves. Um, they, uh, there's a price to getting it right, but there's also a price to getting it incorrect and wrong. Um, so they are forced to do a couple things. One, make those decisions uh, with the knowledge that they have. Um, they could get it right. They could get it wrong. Um, they also are forced to um, deal with that and maybe take on a little bit more of an administrative burden um, and takes their focus away from driving revenue to the business. Um, you know, with with a trusted third party, they can delegate that out. Um, they have somebody that is there for them, keeping their finger on the pulse of, of all things uh, HR and uh, people related. So they can go and focus on driving revenue to the business. They can have a deeper understanding of uh, the culture of their organization and drive, help get their employees to commit and be engaged. Um, and if there's one thing we've learned is a highly engaged workforce means ultimately more revenue for the business. Hmm. So how does the co-employment relationship work? So co-employment is, is actually a legal construct. Um, it replaces that traditional two-party employer-employee arrangement uh, with a third-party relationship between a PEO. Um, a client company um, and its employees actually they, that include the business owner and under the arrangement, the PEO will assume or shares many of the responsibilities of being an employer and, and will provide the clients and workers with access to a wide range of benefits and services not typically found at a small business level. Ah, Brett, tell me how a company will gain a competitive edge if they use a PEO. Sure. Um, PEOs offer businesses that competitive advantage by handling, like I said, that key HR function, and then it allows the owners to focus on building and growing their companies. Mm-hmm. Some small businesses out there may have may have never had an HR department, and by gaining access to a highly talented and knowledgeable team uh, the HR sp- uh, of HR f- professionals, um, they can make a substantial difference in that success equation for a company. Now, when you're a business starting out, maybe small business, and you're starting to grow, when would that business owner know when it's a good time to start working with a PEO? So businesses will typically seek the services of a PEO when they hit a pain point. Um, That pain point could be complexities related to providing employee benefits. Uh, that pain point could be handling risk management, uh, possibly government compliance, uh, recruiting, retaining top talent. Um, that's usually when they they kind of when things become a little bit more complex, um, when they're re- when they're growing their business and they start to realize that they're running two businesses: one, the business of being an employer, and the business that's driving their revenue. And when they need some relief on the employer side. Uh, that's usually when they they seek out and can start talking to a PEO um, company that, that will ensure those HR functions are still handled with the level of care that's needed. 
Ooh, I like it so much. Give me some details on how people can get more information on uh, PEOs and, of course, on Insperity, please. Sure. Um, Insperity, you can you can go right to our website, um, www.insperity.com. Uh, will certainly be a great place to start and educate yourself on PEOs. Um, there is also... Um, you can learn about what are certified PEOs on the IRS website um, uh, for that, and which PEOs are certified through the IRS um, is another way to, to learn. And then, you know, you can, you can certainly find that out. Um, we're, we're happy to educate those on what a PEO is as well if they, if they reach out. Mm, all right. There you go. Thank you so much for enlightening us. I know the HR departments around the world now are going to get a PEO and get this figured out so they can do what they need to do, service and solutions. Hey, Brett, don't be a stranger. We appreciate all the information you've given us here on the Florida Roundtable. Thanks, Melissa. You got it. You're listening to the Florida Talk and Entertainment Network. You've been listening to the Florida Roundtable with Melissa Fox, a news and public affairs presentation of the Florida News Network. The views and opinions expressed during this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of this station management, owners, or sponsors. For questions or concerns, contact Florida Roundtable at fnnonline.net.